So if we haven't met, my name's Tim, and tonight we're starting a new teaching series on the book of Acts called Origins, exploring the way of the early church. So I wonder what you really think about church. Like really, actually, if I forced your hand to tell me your real thoughts and feelings, if I put a gun to your head, I mean, I wouldn't do that. I don't have a gun for a start, and it would also be quite weird. But what, what do you really think deep down about church? Do you think it's a wonderful thing, a terrible thing? The fact that you're here means you probably have an opinion, at least. Uh, but I, I, I think church is, is, is truly remarkable. I don't know anything like it. I've seen some of the most brutal and most beautiful things in the church. I mean, it's quite weird, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Singing to a God, you can't see a thing. The space, the whole story about God becoming a baby, dying and then not dying anymore. It's, I mean, it's all quite a strange story, isn't it? And what we do is weird, but also the people are quite strange, aren't they? I don't know if you find that people quite strange. But actually, it's the non-strange ones that really freak me out, because the whole story is pretty weird. So what are the non-weird people doing here? In fact, you look pretty cool, some of you. What are you doing here? You not got anywhere better to be? No? No? Well, the reality is whoever you are, you are welcome tonight. Everybody is welcome, the weird and the non-weird, the cool and the uncool. The church gathers people from all places, and, and it actually has been a, a, an experience of, for me. Being part of church has been an experience of incredible uh, beauty. I've seen things that I will never be able to forget. I, just recently, some of us went away for a weekend to a spa hotel, uh, which was very nice. Uh, KXC weekend away, and there were moments there where God was ministering. For one of the speakers, particularly a guy called Julian, was, was giving words that he felt God was communicating to him uh, for people's lives to encourage them to build them up. And I remember catching the eye of some of you as, as we saw our friends who we love being spoken to with the voice of kindness and courage. And we just wept. <laughs> I caught people through teary eyes just weeping as you see our friends called out and lifted up. Recently, I, I went to a church in another part of London, and it was a really formal church. And in the high point of the most formal uh, point of the service, in communion, everything was quite, uh, quite kind of set at that point. People were knowing what they were doing. There was, there was, everyone was queuing up like we did just then. And, and then this guy came in off the streets, clearly a rough sleeper. And as he walked towards the front, the priest clearly recognized him. They caught each other's eyes. And as the guy came closer and closer, they started to cry. And it ended in a big embrace. It went on for about two minutes. And the whole service stopped and was still around this moment of compassion that overcame everything else that was going on. That's beautiful. It was truly beautiful. But the church can also be brutal. All this, all the ideas, the, the stuff we dream for, the, the story of, of a God who loves us and perfect, worked out with just people like you and me. The church has been responsible for terrible things. In fact, most of our friends probably primarily relate to the church through the media because they may not even know a Christian. And what do they find in the media? Stories of scandal. And, and they're true. Bad things happen. Church is beautiful, uh, and the church is brutal, and the stats aren't great, are they? 
Even though the church is doing amazing. Have you seen I, Daniel Blake? Anyone can see Anthony? Quite a, quite a few of you. Watched the film this week and I just wept through it. It's a heartbreaking film. But I was reminded that there's a scene of hope when he's at a food bank. And it's the church that runs food bank. By like, I think 95%, the trust trust says, of food banks are run by the church. The church does amazing things. But actually, most people aren't really that bothered. Apathetic. Maybe antagonistic even towards the church and Christianity. But globally, it's another story, a totally different story. In fact, the church is doing pretty well around the world. About 33% of the world are confessing Christians, 2.4 billion. Twice as many uh, Christians as Muslims. It's the most diverse religion that's ever been. I read, uh, tried to find out how many churches there were. I read one study said there were 3 million. And another study said there were 6 million. And uh, there's quite a considerable difference between the two. But the number one message I took was there are loads of churches. Uh, and that we can be sure of. And in fact, it's growing rapidly everywhere else but Europe and North America. And at the start of the 20th century, almost all Christians were in countries where they were the majority. So actually 95% of Christians were in countries where they were the majority. It's currently now 59%. So Christianity is growing in countries where it's not the majority. The most conservative figures say there are 31 million Christians in China. It's 2.3% of the population. In fact, when I was doing my undergrad in theology, the Chinese government paid for someone to come and do a a PhD, an atheist, communist, and his job was to write a report for the government predicting what what basically they thought the Christians in China would do. As this number grows and grows, and the predictions say the 2.3% will grow exponentially, how will they vote and what will they do? The world is watching Christianity with interest. The fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. 13%. On a global scale, this century is actually set to be the most interesting and dynamic and expansive century yet for Christianity. It's exciting, but not so much around here, right? I don't know if you were full of that level of global vision and excitement when you got the tube or walked over to church this this evening. Actually, like I said, it feels like our, our surrounding is a bit of a different story. But if the church is going to come alive in the West again, it's going to be with people like you and me. Weird or not weird, it's going to be people like you and me that discover something new of the church. And so that's why we're doing this story, to look at our origins. It's a study of the formation and the foundation of Christianity. The first couple of decades I read about in the the book of Acts. We're going to work through that book in the Bible. Do you love an origin story? I love a good origin story. Particularly the Marvel Comics or, you know, Wolverine with the spikes. There's some nods there, some serious Marvel comic fans. And how, how like, Superman got the cape. And we love it with celebs, don't we? Like, who were they before they were famous? When Pippa Middleton was just Pippa Middleton before she was a princess. Like, they're interesting, aren't they? I was with my granddad yesterday. He's 95, coming to the very end of his life. I just kept on asking him these questions about like, his life. And I, I was aware that this might be, you know, who knows if I'll, I'll see him again. So I wanted to get the stories. And to be quite honest, some of the things he told me were really quite boring <laughs> to anybody else. But to me, but I was fascinated. So, so he was nine and he moved from, from Wales to the south coast of England. I think I asked him for about 10 minutes about his journey there. Just like, this is the only time I'm going to get to hear about the bus and what happened. So I just asked this question. And it's boring to anybody else. But to me, it's significant because it's about my origins. And when we look at our origins, we discover something about our identity, something about who we are, but also something about our purpose, what we're here for. 
You see, by looking at this, this series on the book of Acts, it isn't to escape the present and to think, okay, the church is doing well globally, but it's depressing here. Actually, it's quite the opposite. We want to discover more about our identity and more about our purpose, more about what we are to do and who we are right now. Kexi, this is an amazing moment for the church. Because it's to no one else in, in this context that's given the job of being the church but the church. And if there is to be a, a, new, a move of new life and new growth in the Western church, it'd be down to people like me and you. And it feels like at this time the spirit is stirring. And so we want to step into what God has under the authority of of the scripture. So we're studying this story. And I would encourage you to read the book of Acts. You might be able to read it once over the next six weeks, twice, three times, four times. Prizes for anyone that gets to ten perhaps. But just as long as you read it. And this might help you. There's a website called thebibleproject.com. Great videos to give you the kind of facts. They're doing this animation at the moment. They haven't actually finished the final one on Acts. And it's due in a couple of weeks. It's like destiny. The series and this video are one. So there's also these other videos, um, but they just kind of give the facts. They're, they're called the scroll series, I think. And they're brilliant to get your head around the story and the narrative of Acts. But none of this should replace actually reading the book for yourself. I really encourage you to do that. Find a time daily to do it. Uh, whatever you do daily, I don't know, brush your teeth. Whatever, be, well, you can't really read a book while you brush your teeth unless you're incredibly talented. I couldn't anyway, but you might be able to. But find something else you do every day, and, and that could be an opportunity. Maybe even when you go to the loo. It could be sacred time. It is for many of us. I think it is for Pete Hughes. He's in there for hours. Either doing incredible spiritual warfare or just needs a doctor. I don't know. I don't know which. But anyway, um, find a time to read Acts. So let's begin. Over the next few minutes, I'm just going to give you some tools that I hope will be useful as we look through the book over the next six weeks. Quite a bit of information. So get ready. Here we go. Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus. Already three questions for you. What was the former book? Who is even saying this? And who is Theophilus? So the former book is really the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this, and, and before writing Acts, he wrote a gospel, one of the early biographies of Jesus, like Matthew, uh, Mark, and John, the other biographies of Jesus. And, and Acts is really volume two of volume one. And, and we pick up the story of who Luke is actually in Acts. He enters the, the story later on in the book. It's very obvious because it says we. So it goes from saying they went to this place and they did this to then we. And that's the moment where that Luke enters in. He was one of the companions of Paul. Who's, Paul's like one of the big hitters, if not the biggest hitter of kind of early Christianity after Jesus. And, and Luke kind of traveled around, seeing firsthand all the things that were going on in the early church. We, we read about him in Philemon and Colossians. And that's where we find out he was a doctor, a very useful person to take on a journey. Uh, and also he was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. Two categories in the New Testament, Jews and everybody else called Gentiles. And he's the only Gentile author. And we'll see the significance of that as we go forward. So you'll see um, from what's behind me, this, this is the beginning of his gospel, that he wrote the gospel to draw up an orderly account because he was a first-hand witness of the start of the church. He, he wrote this account, and he wrote it for this guy, Theophilus, mentioned again in, in, in both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And Theophilus was probably the money man, some serious pounds sterling put down. He probably paid for Luke to write this gospel. It was really expensive to get the kit ready and to sort of travel the gospel around. So Theophilus was probably a, a, an early church leader, someone with a lot of cash. We don't know where, but it's fascinating that it's a particular place and a particular time that Luke is writing. 
not for spectators, but for people on the front line of Christianity. And so this book uh, was written and sent to this guy. His name means lover of God or dear to God. And so let's continue on into chapter one. Let's go back to chapter one of Acts. It begins in my former book, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's the continuation of the gospel. All that Jesus began to do, the stories that maybe you know of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, Acts is is the continuation. It's what he began to do, but now continued. And this time, though, it's a bit different. If the story of the gospel is a story about what Jesus did, now the story is about what the Spirit does through the early disciples. As we go on in verse 4, it says, Do not leave Jerusalem. This is Jesus' command to the disciples. Do not leave uh, Jerusalem, but wait for my gift the Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so we, we call it the Acts of the Apostle because it's the adventures of the early disciples of Jesus after Jesus sent the Spirit at Pentecost. But really the most consistent figure is the Spirit. You know, there are disciples uh, like Peter that get a bit of attention. Philip gets a little cameo. Stephen gets a few bit. Paul gets chapters and chapters. It focuses on a different moments and different things. But it's the Spirit that's consistent. It's really the act of the Holy Spirit empowering the disciples uh, to continue on what Jesus began in the gospel. And to help us really ask, I think we need to kind of ask at four levels questions to get the most out of what God might be saying to us through Acts. The first level really is is how does what we read in Acts relate to the gospel? If it's part two, it's helpful to kind of think, well, well, does this relate to anything in part one? And I'll show you an example of that in a moment. Secondly, actually it tells us what happened. In the time after Jesus died, the next couple of decades, we've got to actually learn what, what happened as the Spirit fills the disciples and they start to act. But then the third level is from what perspective Luke writes, probably about 80 AD. And that would give us some clues. And remember, he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to a particular group of people at a particular time. What clues are there about that time that allow us to understand what the events in Acts mean? So you've got like a sandwich. The time when Luke was writing and the gospel that came before it that will allow us to understand what happened and what the words basically say when we read Acts. And then, of course, the last question, the last level is probably the most important. Ultimately, is from our perspective now in 2019, what does this mean? The questions I was asking at the beginning. What is, when we look at the big story of the church globally, what does this mean for us now at this moment in time? So in chapter 1, we read, uh, about, we read Jesus, Jesus basically is teaching the disciples. He's died uh, and he's risen again, which was a surprise, right? I mean, the surprise was pretty full on with the death part because they expected him not to die. In fact, the, the early disciples of Jesus in the book of, in the gospel of Luke, they expected him to win, he was meant to be a winner. He was the Messiah. The Messiah was the one that was, was, was to come and set the people free to liberate the people of Israel who were oppressed by Rome. And, and then he died on a Roman cross. A peculiar point of the story. Dismay and disappointment. And then it got even weirder when he rose again. Because that was only meant to happen at the end of time. But here it is happening now. And so uh, we read, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so they ask him a very logical question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because the story they'd been living in was the story that actually the Messiah would come and it would go back to the time like, like when David was king. And we would have freedom to, to rule the land and to worship. And there's something else going on that they haven't quite grasped. There's a fuller promise that's just on the edge of their experience. They can't quite taste it yet. But Jesus responds to this fairly logical question. And he says, but now you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They'd missed the the true significance of what the cross and resurrection meant. Return to a previous script. But actually what's about to happen, which we'll read about and study carefully next week in Acts 2, is the beginning of a new story. The beginning of the age of the Spirit filling a new people. And this is something, this this bigger story, something that Luke actually has been trying to point people's attention to from the beginning. From the beginning of his gospel. So here's an example of how looking back at the gospel makes sense of of the book of Acts. See at the start of Luke's gospel, just after the Christmas stories with the shepherds and all that kind of bit. There's this account of Jesus being taken to the temple in Jerusalem. Which would have been a profound and important moment. It's kind of like a christening or a baptism. But even more important for the people at the time because the temple was the center of it all. The temple was the most precious thing because the temple was the place where God dwelt. It marked Israel out as special and and different from all the other nations. The temple was the overlap between heaven and earth. And so taking Jesus, Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple to perform the kind of traditional rites, this is a moment of profound importance. And at that moment, this happens. A man called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought the child Jesus to him to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms, praising God and saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of our people, Israel. He's pointing to the deep story of Israel. From the very beginning when Abraham was called to father the nation of which Jesus would come from, the people of Israel, the calling was to be a blessing to all nations. The prophet Isaiah, which Simeon quotes here, saying that actually this is not just for the Jews but for the Gentiles, was always the deep story of Israel. But they could only imagine up until this point that it would happen according to the the reestablishment of a political kingdom like David's. But actually something else is about to happen. Something else is about to happen by the Spirit of God. And remember this sort of significant thing that actually it's Luke writing this. Luke is a Gentile. He's one of those that have received this light, has understood that Jesus is the Messiah and that something is going on. And the the, uh, significance of the time shouldn't be jumped over because if this was written in about 80 AD, which most people think, it's seriously significant because this isn't debate, this is just history. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. 
Still for Jews today, probably the saddest moment in, in, in their lips, sort of the memory of the community was 70 AD where the temple was destroyed. And, and Jews to this time still long for the temple to be rebuilt. And so Luke is writing from the perspective of the temple being destroyed to a people dislocated from their origins. He's writing at this moment, uh, and when he's recording this, it must have been with a level of emotion, a level of kind of intentionality that he's, he's remembering that Jesus was taken to the temple. And Jesus was held and, and lifted up to say that this is salvation for the whole world. This is a light to the Gentiles. And now he's writing to the early church, and, and the church was made up by Jews and Gentiles. And it was a great kind of confusion, and a lot of the New Testament is about that dynamic. How do we kind of work together? How do we live together? And he's writing, and he's pointing to something that's about to happen in Acts 2. And what's about to happen, we'll look at it properly next week, but in brief, is that the Holy Spirit is to form a new temple. You see, the temple space was always marked out by fire right from Genesis onwards to when the law was given and fire came down and filled the tabernacle and that ultimately became the temple. Fire marks out temple space. And on the day of Pentecost, fire came. Visible tongues of fire symbolically representing that the temple was being remarked around people, around these disciples. And they were just ordinary people like you and me. And so if the temple is the overlap of heaven and earth, the place where God dwells, in the age of the church, we are the new temple, the new people, filled by the presence of God, but sent by the presence of God. We've said that origins, uh, by looking at origins, we're wanting to discover more our identity and our purpose. And that's our identity. To be the presence of God, the marked out space, the overlap of heaven and earth. But our purpose is to extend that overlap. See, Jesus says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at next week when it comes. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's actually how Acts is structured. So the first eight chapters happen in Jerusalem. And then in Judea and Samaria, the gospel starts to, the message of Jesus starts to be taken out. And then the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and others and ultimately ends in Rome. The center of gravity shifts as this force propels the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's what was begun. And actually, although the gospel is spreading like never before, it's still what is going on. To the very ends, the very purpose of the earth. We're living within this story now. Our purpose is to extend the overlap. Our identity is to be the dwelling place, the temple, of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. That's the church. That's your job. It's kind of an amazing job description, really, if you think about it. But the purpose is to extend to the very ends of the earth. And this, this kind of like dwelling of God is described as the kingdom of God. And the story of the kingdom, like I said, it, it wasn't a reversing to the, the kingdom of the Old Testament, but a new dynamic uh, established by Jesus' death and resurrection. By his ending of one covenant and establishing of a new, opening up a doorway of freedom to all people. The end of the law, the fulfillment of the law, Jesus' death on the cross. That we can be right with God even though we're sinners because of the gift of God on the cross. And that in his resurrection, a new dawn was established, a never-ending truth because God has beaten death. 
So the gift that he's given is for good and forever for you and for me. The kingdom of God. And the book of Acts ends with Paul proclaiming, as it says here, the kingdom. It's the very last verse in, in the book of Acts. The kingdom is like a frame around Acts. So the story we're in, really, what this all means is that, that we are the extending force of heaven on earth. We're the extending force of, of, of the very rule and reign, the kingdom of God. And so when we think about this, if we're the overlap of, the heaven, of heaven and earth on, on the world, we're the new temple and we're to extend it. It's a moment of the future beginning amongst us because what we long for isn't fully here. We long for the time when, when the kingdom is fully here, when there's no more sickness or suffering, all pain and tears are washed away, but it's not fully here. So it's the future beginning amongst us. The story of Acts is future beginnings. And so at this time for us, as we kind of grapple with the book of Acts, as we journey through, uh, I want to just remind you and, and press a bit more into this idea of our identity and our purpose. You see, if the kingdom is something that's now but not fully here, it's now but not fully yet we're like an anticipation and and a foretaste by anticipation I picture that that moment in the changing rooms and then if you ever played sport but before a big game when the the is a heightened tension right anticipation of what's to come that's what worship is like we're anticipating a day when there is no more sickness, suffering, illness there's no more sadness there's no more loneliness no more rejection there's no more shame we anticipate that. That's what prayer is about, longing for that, bringing some of it to earth. When we were doing communion, then we were anticipating a day when all things are made new. Every inch, every street, everything remade, perfected. That's the kingdom of God come full. And so the anticipation is, is key because it makes sense of like the part of us that yearns for something, the part of us that longs for something. It makes sense of art. It makes sense of the fact that there's such beauty in the world and such tragedy. You see, we don't need to be utopian. Everything at the moment hinges on Brexit, right? It seems like it to me. Like everything hinges on Brexit. Brexit's taken over every, every single part of people's social and political and kind of public lives. But actually, for those who are called to be Jesus' people, it's not the deal breaker. It's not the case that we want to build a perfect world, but we anticipate the time when Jesus will return. We're not going to do it by ourselves. So we long for this day, but we're also a foretaste. And by that, I think starter, which is basically the biblical word. It talks about first fruits, the very beginning. So it's not nothing, right? I mean, don't dismiss a, start, a starter as like a serious thing, but it's just not everything. We don't, that's why there's bad things in the church. It's not all here, but, but don't dismiss a starter. You know, for a hungry man, a starter is a very important thing. I love a good starter. We actually get to taste it. We actually get to be part of it. You know, when Julian Adams, uh, Weekend Away, was speaking words from God, that couldn't have been done just by, like, human intellect. When we pray for the sick to be healed, that can't be something that humans do. When, when, when the, the priest that I told you about was overcome with compassion, and that was a moment of the kingdom of God breaking in. When culture's been reformed about the princi- around the principles of God, that's when the kingdom bre- We get to be a foretaste. It's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about it anyway. See, the world does not make sense of the church. But ultimately, the church makes sense of the world. 
all the longings and all the pain around us. We're the interpreters of those hopes and those fears, the sadness you, you pass on the streets. We've got a story that makes more sense. And it's a story that's, that's breaking in. There's a foretaste amongst us. And the church is the primary agency of that foretaste of the kingdom of God at work. But we must never forget that we can never say we're it, right? <laughs> it's not just this. It's always to Jesus, always to more. Always to Lord, we long for more. Break in, bring more. And so we don't need to be insecure. We don't need to measure ourselves against what the world does. We're actually the interpreter of the world's desires, interpreter of the world's longings. So we don't need to feel like somehow the church is a sort of, it is necessarily misfitting at the right times. It's necessarily different. We sing a slightly different song. Not everything that we do is always popular. That's been the story of Christianity from the day, first day, as we'll read. But at times the church has been responsible for the greatest social innovation. You know, hospitals, school, champagne. All kinds of things came from the church. You know, you can't imagine a society without hospitals and schools, right? Maybe you can imagine one without champagne. But you can't imagine one without hospitals and schools. It was invented by monks about a thousand years ago. It took centuries for the world to realize that actually that's a pretty good idea to have a world with hospitals and schools. It's a foretaste of something that's coming. The church is actually pregnant with new possibilities today. I wonder, I just wonder, even now, what the Spirit's doing in some of you. Cynicism? Confusion? Maybe imagination? What would it look like for people in this room to bring about the next hospital? The next version of the school? The next answers to the longings of the human soul? The, the, the phrase that comes up time and time again in, in the Gospel of Luke and Acts is in the power of the Spirit. And as I said, when we're going to study it in, in detail next week, that the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was really like the birthday of the church. And it's all the way through Luke, the Gospel, he kind of uses this phrase, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus does this or Jesus does that, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus just gives it all away to his followers, his disciples. And the power of the Holy Spirit is what marks us out, what makes us this new temple of God. And the Spirit is primary to structure. I love a good bit of structure, partly because I'm so disorganized. I love people that can bring structure. I love a good bit of structure. But the Spirit is primary to the structure. So the disciples, they weren't even called Christians. No one gets called a Christian until the 13th chapter of Acts. They're called people of the way. There's no structure. There's an agitation and an energy coming from the Spirit of God. And then the structure happens as a consequence. Now, structure is a great thing. You look at the great moves of God in, in history. There have been people that have, have brought structure. There was Whitfield's incredible, powerful preaching. But Wesley figured out a way to create structure that would contain the energy of the Spirit. It's really what Pete James and the team are doing with Patton at this church. If God is moving, if God is provoking us to be uh, alive with the Spirit, then there needs to be containers for what God's doing. I'm not anti-structure, but actually our structures can get in the way. Like I said, the Gospel of Luke was kind of Act 1, and then the Book of Acts, Act 2, slightly awkward phrase there, uh, it's carrying on the ministry of Jesus, but through the disciples, empowered by the Spirit. 
And when I look at the ministry of Jesus, I'm abundantly aware that I can't, I can't do it. Not something like, I can't cast out demons and heal the sick. Set, announce freedom for those who are in prison. I, I can't do that. To be the church, we need the Spirit. We need to remember the primacy of the Spirit. And when the Spirit engages many structures, they just burst open. All the div- divisions, even though I mentioned Jew and Gentile, it's been burst open in the pages of the New Testament as a new community. A new humanity has been formed around the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to see this if we follow the Spirit. Miracles that, that, that blow open the, the ordinary process of, of sickness and death. People are raised from the dead in the New Testament. I can't do that. The Spirit can do that. People are healed from sicknesses. I can't do that, but the Spirit can do that. There are riots in cities, new communities formed. One of the structures that the Holy Spirit hijacks is just the home. The households become actually, in the study of Christianity, we realize it's the main infrastructure that the Holy Spirit uses. The Holy Spirit isn't anti-structure, but the Holy Spirit is primary to structure. So what's the Holy Spirit wanting to do? Often interrupt us. Often encourage us. Empower us. And if we're the anticipation and the foretaste of the renewal of all things, we need God in full, not in part, not a spectator form of Christianity. We need to be in the center and the thickness of what God is doing to be able to represent God to the world. So we need the Spirit. Now, the word began in the very first line of Acts that I spoke about. That's the critical thing, right? It's not done, it's not completed, but something's began. And it's like looking at startup Christianity when you read Acts. And our job is to continue to do our chapter, to do our, our, our bit. And if there's to be this new kind of birth in, in, in the Western world, then I think we're going to have to take some risks, pioneer some new things. You know, a church like this church, actually, its legacy is pioneering. The reality of the last nine years is KX has been a pioneering church, but it feels as though this is a moment of recapturing that identity and a new forcefulness and a new reality as the Spirit empowers us. Emma Heddle, who wrote this, um, I want to read something that she wrote. Sometimes she writes down uh, what she senses the Spirit's doing. I think what she wrote down perfectly encapsulates this idea of how we pioneer and how we prepare ourselves to be moved and empowered by the Spirit, not just compliant to structures. So... Just listen to this. We all pity the man who tries to turn back the tide, the bedraggled lone man standing on the shoreline, desperately trying to change the certainty of nature with a single bucket. Again and again, he fills the bucket with water, emptying it further out into the sea, hoping he'll be able to preserve the fragile sandcastles he's lovingly crafted on the sand. But the tide is coming in. No matter how hard he tries, they will be swept away, blinkered to the opportunity that fresh sand brings. He wears himself out as he battles the inevitable, forgetting that sandcastles were only ever meant to be temporary. Yes, beautiful in their time, but vulnerable, vulnerable structures that should serve a moment rather than be preserved for eternity. The thing with the tide is that it's all-consuming. It doesn't save or preserve. It drags up the old and leaves clean, crisp sand in its wake. The question isn't how do we preserve the frameworks. It's are you prepared to surrender what you've built? We can't dream of the day when the strongholds of this land crumble, ancient imposing rocks that have dominated the landscape for so long, washed away in a roaring wave without surrendering the sandcastles. 
The tide erodes those ancient cliffs, but it also destroys the frameworks of past seasons, which cannot contain this new life. Fragile egos won't withstand the tide's roar. Strongholds are coming down, but so are your structures. You can't have one without the other. The roar of the sea is terrifying. The power is immense, but there's also untold opportunity. There's an invitation in, a moment to be seized by those who have learned to hold things lightly, free from the burden of expectation and preservation, who are prepared to surrender what has worked in order to embrace the present moment. For those who don't fear the crumbling of systems because they can see beyond the destruction to the playfulness and joy that fresh sand brings. It's to those that this season belongs, to the rebuilders, the risk takers, the visionaries, to those who throw caution to the wind and take nothing with them. The landscape is about to be leveled. It's time to pioneer again. And these words, I think they just beautifully capture the opportunity but also the challenge. You know, actually pioneering is hard. Um, some of you know my wife and I and a team have been beginning to form a new church. And my experience of pioneering, uh, actually compared to other times of pioneering, has been completely overwhelming. We've tried to do things in step with the Spirit, which means that actually the way I would like to control things hasn't always happened. In fact, some of you know it's taken longer than we would have hoped to begin this new church. But in, the, in that experience, two incredible things have happened. Firstly, I think we've become a bit more like Jesus in the waiting and depending on him. But also, and I think kind of importantly, as well as the waiting, there's been an intimacy with Jesus that otherwise wouldn't be possible. In that kind of pregnant sort of pause of like, God, what will you do? We need you to do this. There's an invitation to, to intimacy. There's an invitation in pioneering not to do things away from God, but to do things with him. And pioneering is on this congregation. It's on some of you tonight. It's what you're for. So as we close, the the summary of this book is, is really that a new community is established by the presence of God. When Jesus' followers, empowered by the Spirit, proclaim the news about Jesus, this kingdom rushing in, they're in anticipation and a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And the center of gravity moves from just one location to all locations. The propulsion behind Christianity is to the ends of the earth. We're the people that can do this, but not without the Holy Spirit. Our structures are temporary. Our sandcastles, great for a moment, but they're not the point. This is a moment of profound importance for Christianity in our nation. This is a moment where many are looking back to the revivals of old and saying, do it again, God. This is a moment not just to spectate, but to step in. This is a moment where I think God is releasing specific destiny on people to take risks to pioneer. This is a moment more than ever where if we're to do this, we need God's Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me? I feel like I want to pray for all of us, but specifically those that this pioneering thing is is upon. And I think pioneering with God is different from just normal risk-taking. Because normal risk-taking often, uh, it's like gambling. Gambling's good because you know the reward. You put 10 down, you might get 100 back. There are moments in the kingdom of God where the people of God have taken risks of which they do not know what the reward is. Like the people at the banks of the promised land. In the book of Joshua. Their story, their origin story was Moses. Moses lifted up his staff and the waters parted and the people went through. But now God says, go in the water first. 
and I will then pour out the waters. They've learned a lot in their period of wandering in the desert, and this is a time of paradigm-shifting faith. This is a time where we're called to do things of which we do not know fully the outcome. So maybe you know what it is you're pioneering. Maybe some of you have a really clear idea that there's something that's about the, an anticipation and a foretaste of the kingdom of God that you're called to do. But maybe you don't even know what it is. You just sense, yeah, this is the adventure I want. When I was with my granddad, I, I found myself thinking, I'm going to be part of the church for the next 50 years at least, unless I get sacked or something. <laughs> What stories do I want to pass on? What stories do you want to pass on? Stories of attendance, religious activities you did, friends you met. My prayer and my hope is, is that tonight you've got an imagination for something that hasn't yet been done. A vision of the kingdom of God that, that has begun but not done. A vision of the kingdom that involves just normal people that want to follow Jesus like you and me. A vision of the kingdom of God that, that actually needs the Holy Spirit. What stories do you want to take? Well, it begins with simply saying, Spirit, come.